welcome to our third episode of the English Students' Digest. Uh, it's going to be a fun episode today. We're going to be focusing on the life and works of Edgar Allan Poe, which is pretty cool. Edgar Allan Poe is a pretty messed up dude, um, and his writing is dark and mysterious and interesting, so I think it's pretty cool. Um, we're going to be focusing on the poem The Raven Today, which is probably... Um, one of, if not the most uh, famous of Edgar Allan Poe's works. Um, we're also going to be looking at literary structure in um, general, as well as in relation to the poem The Raven, and uh, a review of figurative language, because I think fi- figurative language is so cool. Um, of course, we're going to have our words of the day and whatnot, but we're going to get into some pretty interesting analysis of our poem, The Raven, as well as Edgar Allan Poe's influence on modern literature. Let's start off our episode today with our words of the day. We have two words of the day, as we do every episode, um, and they're both in our text, which is the raven. The first word is beguile, which means to charm or enchant someone, sometimes in a deceptive way. So you're being hoodwinked, you're being um, manipulated, you're being beguiled, I'm beguiling you, you're being deceived. That's what it means to beguile. Um, It has kind of a negative connotation. Um, So when you're using the word beguile, you're probably talking about a villain or someone who has uh, bad intentions, something like that. Our second word of the day is obeisance, which means deferential respect. So it just means that, you know, let's say you are going to meet the king and you bow to him to, you know, show your respect. That is an example of obeisance. Um, So some uses of that in a sentence would be, they made obeisance to the sultan, he made obeisance to the king. Um, The general commands absolute obeisance. So it can also be used um, to talk about not just you showing obeisance, but someone commanding it. So um, commanding other people to show obeisance. Whereas, you know, beguiling is, it's hoodwinking someone, it's charming them, it's, it's deceiving them. So, for example, you would say, she was cunning enough to beguile her classmates into doing the work for her. They were beguiled into thinking they'd heard the whole story. Almost everything in this quaint little town beguiles, from its architecture to its art to its people. So, um, Those are our two words of the day, and now let's get into figurative language. Alright, so before we get into exactly what figurative language is, let's talk about literary devices. So literary devices, um, this is an important thing to understand because in your English class you're probably going to get an essay prompt talking about, you know, how does the author use literary devices to convey this or convey that in their story. Um, And literary devices are basically anything alongside the plot that an author uses to 
further deepen con and convey their meaning. So it's those little bits of genius added into writing that I think make it so interesting and cool to analyze. Um, so those are literary devices. Now, figurative language is a subcategory of literary devices. And figurative language refers to the use of words in a way that deviates from the conventional order and meaning in order to convey a complicated meaning, colorful writing, clarity, or evocative comparison. So basically, you're using words in a way that they're not literally used. It's figurative. It's not literal. Um, so for example, let's say I was talking about someone and I said, they look blue today. Now. It would be literal language if they actually looked blue, if their skin was blue, if they were Violet Beauregard and they were turning into a blueberry. Um, that would be literal. However, if I'm talking about someone that maybe looks sad, maybe looks a little down, and I said, oh, they look blue today, I would be using figurative language because blue is not the, f the literal meaning. Um, blue used in that sense is not its literal meaning. It's not actually talking about the color blue. It's referring to that person's mood. Um, so that's kind of an overarching thought about figurative language. It's not literal. Now, there are many different types of figurative language. There are similes, metaphors, you can use irony, you can use puns, you can use hyperbole, you can use personification, onomatopoeia, symbolism, alliteration, oxymoron, illusion, idiom, and imagery. Those are, those are the main ones we're going to talk about today. I think my favorite is going to be imagery. I think imagery is always going to be that seasoning that makes, that makes writing so, so delicious and so tasteful and so um, interesting to read because it creates such a rich picture in your head. So what is what is imagery? So imagery is a visually descriptive or figurative language used especially in literary work. So it's basically just a literary device that um, refers to the use of figurative language. So this is other things like similes and metaphors and um, onomatopoeia. All of those things fall under imagery when it's used in this sense. So it's by using effective descriptive language and figures of speech, writers appeal to a reader's sense of sight, taste, smell, touch, and sound, as well as internal emotions and feelings. So for me, I always think of imagery because visual image that's that's what comes to mind so often i just place it under this um, umbrella of it's painting a picture a visual picture in my head so let's look at an example of imagery so if you said the autumn leaves are a blanket on the ground so automatically when you're listening to that or reading that sentence you're forming a picture in your head of, of what's going on here. You can see autumn leaves that are on the ground. Um, but when we look deeper within this sentence, we see the words are a blanket. Now this would be an example of metaphor, because the definition of metaphor is a, compar a, par a comparison between two different concepts not using like or as. So it's like a literal statement being made, but it's not interpreted as literal. So when you say the autumn leaves are a blanket on the ground, you're not going to picture a quilt lying outside. You're going to say, okay, they're using the word blanket to kind of convey this idea that the autumn leaves are covering the entire ground. So that use of a metaphor, are a blanket, um, conveys this very specific image in the reader's head that forces them to picture 
leaves covering the entire ground because of the use of the word blanket in a metaphor. Let's talk about another example of imagery. Um, his words felt like a dagger in my heart. Now this is um, not conveying or appealing to the five senses. Five senses. It's comparing. It's com oh my goodness. It's appealing to emotion. So his words felt like a dagger in my heart. That's talking about you know pain. But it's also utilizing um, the figurative language known as a simile. So a simile is very similar to a metaphor. It's a comparison between two different concepts using the words like or as, whereas metaphor was a comparison not using like or as. So whereas metaphor was like a literal statement, um, simile is gonna have the word like. Now in this sentence, his words felt like a dagger in my heart. We have the phrase like a dagger. So he, you could say his words were a dagger in my heart. That would have been a metaphor, but this writer chose to say his words felt like a dagger in my heart. And so it's, it's conveying that, that pain, that emotion, uh, through it, both imagery and simile here. Now, I love imagery in books so much. I think it's, it's just amazing. Like I said, it just adds that seasoning to the writing. Um, I recently read The Secret History by Donna Tartt, and I think that the imagery, in, I, I wrote an analysis of this book because it was amazing. Um, and I think that imagery in it is so important because of what happens. I'm not going to give spoilers, but I will give you some examples of imagery in this book. Um, you don't really need um, context for this, it's just important to kind of understand the figurative language um, happening here. So, here we go. The entrance hall had a sweet, musty smell, and was so dim it seemed almost gaslit. The walls were spidery with the shadows of potted palms, and on the ceilings, so high they made my head reel, loomed distorted traces of our own shadows. Someone in the back of the house was playing the piano. Photo photographs and gloomy, gilt-framed portraits lined the hall in long perspectives. So I think there's a lot of figurative language in this quote. Uh, so firstly, we have imagery when it says the entrance hall had a sweet, musty smell. We're getting this feeling, well not feeling, we're getting uh, a feel for what our character is experiencing here. He's smelling the entrance hall. We see that it's dim. I think what I like here is the personification when it says the walls were spidery with the shadows of potted palms. So we're getting this feeling from the, the, the shadows on the ceiling, right? So by using the word spidery, um, our author here is, is making us feel maybe this is a little hostile, maybe a little gloomy. It's, it's, also by using the word um, distorted when it's talking about the shadows it's kind of seeming a little you know bizarre a little gloomy again a little um, a little wacko a little dark um, 
It even says photographs and gloomy gilt framed portraits lined the hall. So we're getting all of these feelings from this one quote. Um, we, we can talk a little bit more about personification. So personification projects human qualities onto inanimate objects or perhaps animals or natural elements. So we can use a one-sentence instance of personification. So, when you say, the wind howled in the night, you're personifying the wind by saying that it howled. Wind doesn't have a mouth. It can't actually literally howl, but by using that word, you're connotating, not connotating, oh my goodness, you're, you're conveying a very specific feeling about the wind and how it's howling. But we can also have longer forms of personification. So in the movie Zootopia, all the animals are talking and living in a society. In the real world, animals are not talking and living in a modern society. So that's a longer and, um, you know, more drawn out instance of personification. There are also like longer drawn out instances of metaphors so you can have extended metaphors so maybe in a poem or a short story there's an overall theme or you know like a deeper meaning that's not actually the literal events that happen in the story that would be an extended metaphor it's either one that's repeated throughout or one that is just underlying the entirety of something um, and it goes much bigger is much bigger and goes beyond just a few words or a sentence so let's talk about some of the other examples of figurative language we have here we've already talked about simile and metaphor um, let's talk about irony because people people call things ironic but I think it's um, not really natural to think that, oh, of irony as a literary device, right? So, um, irony is just a contradictory statement or a situation that reveals a reality that is different from what appears to be true. Okay, so this is, this is kind of a, a vague, a wordy definition here. So let's look at some examples. That always helps. Um, so we have two types of irony. There's verbal irony or situational irony. So a verbal, an example of verbal irony would be telling a quiet group, don't everybody speak all at once because there's no one talking. So why would you say don't all speak at once? It's ironic. Um, or you're telling a rude customer to have a nice day. That's, you're saying something that's ironic. However, there's also such things as uh, situational irony. So it's not just lines that are said. It's kind of kind of like extended me metaphor, it goes beyond a few words. So a fire station that burns down. That's ironic because it's a fire station and it burned down. Um, or, you know, the winner of a spelling bee that failed a spelling test. That's ironic. Um, so that's some examples of irony. And there's also dramatic irony in um, in media, so that's that's when the audience knows something that the characters don't. Often in like comedies, that happens. So you know something about um, a situation that a character doesn't. That's dramatic irony. All right, so let's talk about puns. People know what puns are. They're dad jokes. Um, but 
I, what I like, what I think is funny about puns is the fact that it's called a play on words, and why didn't they just call it a pow? That like makes so much more sense, you know? Play on words. Just call them pows. But it's a pun. Um, okay, so a, it's a play on words that's in, often intended for humor. So, for, as as an example, you could say, "Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana." Because it's a pun. Because you're using time flies like an arrow when you use the word flies this is also a double entendre when you use the word flies you're using it as um a verb time is flying when you say fruit flies like a banana you're using flies as a noun you're talking about fruit flies the little insects um fruit flies like a banana so yeah that's That's an example of a pun. Okay, we already talked about personification. I think the next uh, two most important things here that are going to come up later in our in our text, the Raven, are going to be um, onomatopoeia and symbolism. So let's talk about onomatopoeia because this one's fun to say. Onomatopoeia. It's also fun to spell. No, it's not. It's difficult to spell. Um, but it's words sounding like the thing they describe. So it's sound, sound, sound. So sound effects, it's basically sound effects in writing. So saying tick-tock or ding-dong, those are those are everyday examples because a clock sounds like tick-tock and a, and a bell or a doorbell sounds like ding-dong. Um, but when you hiccup, you it sounds like you say hiccup. So that's also an example of onomatopoeia. It's a word sounding like the thing it describes. Um, but an, a very iconic example of this appears in our poem, The Raven, um, in the line, quote, suddenly, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. So, yeah, so we have the tapping and the rapping. That's, that's the sound that is being described as onomatopoeia. Alright, and then the second thing coming up in our text is symbolism. So, a symbol, most people know what a symbol is. It's something that stands for or suggests something else and represents something beyond literal meaning. So, against, against this is, again, this is going beyond literal meaning, which is why it's figurative language. So, in literature, a symbol can be a word. It can be extended and be an, a character or an action or a concept um, that, you know evokes more meaning and significance within the writing. So I think we we obviously have symbolism in, in this, but I love the symbolism in the Hunger Games. Um, there's so much about the roses and the, and the birds and the snakes as you go through that entire series that I think makes it so much more genius and so much more meaningful when you're going through and analyzing that. Um, so yes, I love I love literature that has these things like symbolism and deeper meaning because it's so much more fun to analyze. So in our um, poem, The Black Cat, we have a lot of symbolism. I'm not gonna go through, we haven't, we haven't read the text yet, so I'm not going to um, spoil what happens. Um, but we have symbolism with the raven, with our narrator, and kind of what happens in the story, but the most significant ones are the raven, the, narr the narrator, 
their actions and what they say. I mean, that kind of encompasses everything. Uh, but that's what we're going to be talking about symbolism-wise. Alright, now we're going to talk in general about poem structure before we get into actually reading a poem. So, a poem, um, it there are many things that can give a poem structure. Obviously, there are stanzas. So, a stanza is basically the main building block of a poem. So, it's it's a unit of lines that it's like a paragraph. Um, uh, that a paragraph that you, that you would use in prose or like a verse in a song. Every stanza has its own little concept and its own purpose. Um, and every stanza can, I mean, it depends on what kind of format you're following, but uh, sometimes stanzas can each have their own pattern that's repeated. So a stanza has one pattern and this next stanza has the same, um, depending on the syllables and whatnot. And it could, al it could also just be free-flowing poem verse that that doesn't really have any structure uh but it's still there uh, because of the stanzas um so the structure of a poem is just how it's presented to the reader so it could it could include the line length the line spacing the stanza format the um the pattern of syllables or it could just be how the words and the ideas are organized. Like when you're organizing an essay, you're not literally doing all the tabbing and, and the spacing and stuff. You're just making sure that your ideas follow a logical sequence. So I think to me, what's so important about um, the structure of a poem is based on how thought-provoking or how emotional um, the structure of a poem yeah, what kind of impact that has on the emotional um, communication of the poem. So usually with like a more vague or like a uh, poem with unique structure, like let's say you're writing a poem and you want it printed in like a spiral or something. That's obviously not really conventional, but it's going to give your poem a certain feel. Um, so when you're writing a poem that has kind of a more um, unique poem structure, I think that that um, thought-provoking or emotion-provoking feeling is achieved more easily um, just because you're doing something unique already with your structuring, not necessarily with the content of your writing. So although, you know, that impact is shallow, I think it's more easily achieved when you have um, a unique poem structure. But I think a structured poem with uh, a certain uh, pattern of syllables that it follows or rhyme structure, um, I think that's easier to recognize as genius just because I think from a writing point of view, it's so much harder to naturally achieve that, to achieve that, you know, all of those pieces fitting together to create this poem that works, that makes sense and conveys a good feeling or a strong feeling um i think that free verse poetry i mean free verse poetry is always going to be the easiest to write in just because there are no restrictions um but i think it's important to choose your structure carefully um free verse is easy to write in but it's also easy to become disorganized in um but when you're writing in a specific you know uh, syllable pattern or um, a specific 
pentameter, it's harder to organically generate ideas. So I think it, it, from a writing point of view, it's important to think about the structure of your, um, of your poem. Now, there are many different types of poetry structure. Obviously, we've already talked about um, free verse, which is basically no restrictions. Um, but there's also blank verse, there's rhymed poetry, there's narrative poetry, there are haikus, there's a sonnet, there are limericks, there are villanelles. Um, so there are all different types of poetry structure here. So blank verse, we already talked about free verse, like I said. Uh, blank verse is poetry written with a precise precise meter, which is almost always iambic pentameter that does not rhyme. So if you know Shakespeare um, kind of came up with iambic pentameter, um, but it's it's a meter, so um, uh, a specific pattern of syllables and um, and the space between them that doesn't rhyme. So we have rhymed poetry, which is obviously um, opposite to blank verse, um, which rhyme by definition. Uh, but you could have a rhymed poem that where the first and third lines of a stanza rhyme and the second and fourth lines of a stanza rhyme, or the first and the second of a stanza rhyme and the third and the fourth of a stanza rhyme. Um, it's just that rhyming scheme. We have narrative poetry, which is like um, a, a, a poem telling a story. It's like when you write um, a poem, or when you write a narrative, it's, it's a story. So a narrative poem is a poem that tells a story. A haiku is a three-line poem, and it formed in Japan. So the first line has five syllables, the second has seven, and the third has five. So five, seven, five. Um, those are fairly short. Um, but they're fun to make, and they don't have to rhyme or anything. It's just um, syllable, syllable pattern. Okay, what's a sonnet? A sonnet is a fourteen-line, fourteen-line poem that typically concerns the topic of love. So, uh, usually sonnets contain internal rhymes between their lines. Um, but those rhyme schemes um, can differ depending on the style of a sonnet. Um, there are Shakespearean sonnets, like at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, there's a sonnet about it um, that's basically like the intro to the story. Um, yeah. We have a limerick. Uh, a limerick is a five-line poem, so it's, again, it's a pretty short poem, um, that consists of a single stanza, again, a uh, pretty short poem with an A A B B A rhyme scheme. So what what that means is that the first two lines rhyme, the second yeah the first two lines rhyme, the second two lines rhyme differently than the first two, and the th and the fifth line the last line rhymes the same as a f as the first. Um, then we have a ballad, which is like a narrative verse that can be poetic or musical. So often you'll call songs ballads. Um, and then we have a villanelle. So a villanelle is kind of unique. Um, it's a 19-line poem with a highly specified internal rhyme, rhyme scheme as well as um, a syllable pattern. So this consists of five tercets and a quatrain, which just refers to the number of syllables in each line. Um, and usually um, describes obsessions or, you know, intense subject matters. Um, 
like that like the poem do not go gentle into that good night that's a villanelle um so those are the different types of poems our lovely poem today the raven is uh rhymed poetry um and it has a specific um syllable pattern but the rhyme of this poem is super important in terms of the diction of Edgar Allan Poe, what, what words he chose to use and how those convey, um, you know, the theme and the symbolism within the story. So it's fairly interesting. Let's get into it and let's get a little introduction to Edgar Allan Poe. So I think what is the most interesting thing about Edgar Allan Poe's life is his death. Um, it's still a mystery, which is pretty funny because Edgar Allan Poe was kind of the first author to come up with the detective story, so it's fitting that his death was a mystery. But he, but we don't, we don't really know how he died. He was found in a gutter in Baltimore on election day, um, semi-conscious. He was wearing someone else's clothes. He was, um, traveling from New York to Philadelphia to edit another poet's work, but he never actually made it to Philadelphia um, and was instead found in Baltimore. He was taken, he was found and taken to a hospital in Baltimore um, and he died there. He spent his last days there and he was never fully conscious um, and was not able to acknowledge or describe what happened to him that had led to this situation. Um, throughout basically his entire time at the hospital he was hallucinating he was calling out for uh, on the night before he died he called out for someone named Reynolds we don't we, we don't know who Reynolds is um, he we know that his wife had just recently died he just had his job taken by his arch nemesis he had been drinking um, and there are multiple theories about his death um, you know I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he just was kind of done with life because he was just experiencing so many failures and just wanted to go out with a bang and give historians something to talk about for the rest of time and all right let's talk about some theories about it behind his death though um well firstly the mystery around his death um really made poe like infinitely more famous when he was alive he wasn't really super well known but now he's such an iconic author um, and it, it can be attributed to his death. Um, the most widely accepted possible explanation for Poe's death um, comes from the instances of cooping that occurred in Baltimore. So like I said, um, he was found on election day. Um, so co And cooping was a form of election fraud um, that involved someone being kidnapped and forced to vote for a candidate under multiple identities. So the theory was that Poe was kidnapped, he was forced to vote for a candidate under multiple identities, which is why he was in someone else's clothes. Um, and this was before prohibition. So alcohol was given as a reward for voting. So that would explain why he was kind of in a state of delusion in this gutter. Um, but there are still mysteries about his death. Um, there were trace amounts of mer mercury in his blood, he had symptoms of rabies, and he had remnants of a brain tumor. So, we don't really know what happened to him. Alright, now that we've learned a bit about 
Edgar Allan Poe's death, let's read his poem, The Raven, uh, which, as I've mentioned before, is arguably his most famous work. Um, like I mentioned, it has a very specific uh, syllable pattern as you go through each stanza, which gives it um, a really unique feel and, and um, rhythm. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow, from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow, for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This is it, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore, merely this and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery implore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou, I said, art sure no craven. Ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. 
Much I marvel marveled this ungainly fool to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or pe bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, nevermore. Startled at the dark... Startled at the stillness, broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melan melancholy burden bore, Of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the full whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press on nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether temp tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there bomb in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell the soul with sorrow laden, if within this distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting, get thee back into the temple tempest and the night's plutonian shore leave no black plume as a token of thy of that lie that thy soul hath spoken leave my loneliness unbroken quit the bust above my door take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door quoth the raven nevermore and the raven never flitting still is sitting still is sitting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door and his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore.
now that we've read our poem, The Raven, let's let's talk about some analysis of this poem. Because when you first read it, it just seems like this guy who meets a raven and he kind of goes crazy. Uh, but there are a lot of little um, genius tricks in this poem that make it so meaningful and fun to analyze, really. So basically, the overarching theme in the poem, The Raven, is this theme of rationality or, or lack thereof and how it kind of slips away as this as the story in the poem continues so this is used um and conveyed in extended metaphor as where as well as just um little sentences and phrases so let's talk about how how this rationality or or irrationality is represented. So firstly, we start off this poem by not really knowing whether the narrator is awake or asleep. Um, in the first or second stanza, he says he was he was about to like nod off. He was reading. He was napping. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping. So he's nearly napping and he hears this tapping. So we don't really know if the tapping is actually happening and it actually woke him up or he's fallen asleep and, and this is what he's dreaming. Again, this tapping is an example of the onomatopoeia that we um, talked about earlier. It's um, the word, the sound being a word used to describe the sound that sounds like the sound itself. Um, Alright, so that's our first instance of kind of, we don't really know what's happening here. Then our narrator mentions Lenore, his, his maiden, his lost love, Lenore. He says, um, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore. So we know whoever Lenore is, is dead. Um, she was his love. Um, she's gone. Um, so we have this kind of sense of haunting when he's talking about his sorrow for her. Um, yeah. As our narrator continues to hear the tapping, um, he kind of tries to rationalize it. He, he's, he says it's just the wind and nothing more. So this phrase, nothing more, is there that represents rationality. Every time it's used, it's the narrator saying, oh, it, it, some, there's a rational explanation for this. It's, tis some visitor, I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Tis... Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This is it and nothing more. So every time uh, nothing more is used, it's it's basically used to symbolize rationality. And it's used throughout the beginning of the poem, but it kind of it fades away as the poem goes on. Because when the narrator opens the door, um, he begins to kind of let some of his rationality slip. He calls out for Lenore, who he knows his is dead. We just had this, he was just talking about being haunted by the sorrow for Lenore, but he calls out Lenore and you can see that there's like this blind hope in the narrator that's kind of causing him to be irrational here. So as soon as he opens the door, um, the rationality that's been maintained throughout is starting to slip, it's starting to go away. Then the raven arrives and we see the raven land on the bust of Pallas Athena. Pallas Athena is the goddess of wisdom and learning, and, and she basically represents uh, being educated and being rational. So the fact that the raven chooses to land on the Pallas Athena is an uh, opposition to that rationality. It's kind of ironic. It's, it's this like supernatural 
being landing on a bus that represents rationality. I think this is so genius. Like from a writing point of view, how how are you writing this and are like, I'm gonna make this raven land on the bust of Pallas Athena because I, you know, he's irrational. Um, and so it's really like when you first read the poem, it's obviously impactful and intriguing, and the stanza structure and the syllable syllable pattern makes it all unique but when you're analyzing it and you're going through and you're noticing these little things like the raven landing on the bust of Pallas athena it makes it so much more significant and meaningful and i love it so much okay then the raven continues to repeat the word nevermore every time it speaks it says nevermore now like we mentioned before every time the narrator was saying nothing more he was using it to um maintain his rationality and the fact that the bird continues to repeat the word nevermore it's basically an op an opposing refutation of rationality because it's so similar to that nothing more that represents rationality but it's refuting it it's nevermore it's irrationality so the narrator tries to reason and he says that you know the raven learned this word from someone else um and uh what does he say He says, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. So he's saying he's trying to come up with a rational explanation for where this raven learned to speak. And he's saying, oh, he must have learned it from someone. Yeah, but at this point, he can't settle for that. There's this feeling of wanting to understand the raven and think beyond just a rational explanation. And he continues to imagine that Lenore might be here. When uh, the narrator says, um, Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer. So this, there's this weird presence um, wherever the narrator is with the raven. And he wants to somehow come up with this explanation that Lenore is here because he's seeing this supernatural raven that's appeared and he wants to say oh my gosh maybe Lenore could be um, back from the dead and so because he's trying to rationalize Lenore coming back it's showing his slipping rationality as these events happen to him now the narrator continues to question the bird but at the at the end of our poem here Asking the bird questions has gotten him nowhere. The bird always just says nevermore in response. And instead he's driven into a frenzy. Um, and instead of wanting to remember, um, wanting to remember Lenore like he has, he wants to forget her. He says, um, respite, 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 and Nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Now Nepenthe was, um, like, I, I think it's, um, a mythical like potion you take to forget stuff so he's he's saying he wants to forget Lenore when he's being haunted by her in the beginning he tries to rationalize that he might be near but now he's saying I want I want to forget her um, and he says this to the raven but the raven obviously does not comply he just keeps saying nevermore and the raven um, stays the raven continues to haunt the 
narrator. He says, And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. So the fact that the raven continues to haunt the narrator and continues to just sit on the bust of Pallas Athena above his chamber door, it just means it signifies that his rational peace and his acceptance of Lenore's death and just of life in general has been driven away by the supernatural, the raven. And the raven staying um, is a reminder of his lack of rationality and um, his lost Lenore. So yeah, that's the raven. I think it's, it's just such a fun it's a fun poem to read, first of all. It's, it's really fun to just get into and, and, and rhythmically read, but it's so much more meaningful when you get to go in and analyze it. Alright, that is a, a wrap on our text of the day, talking about Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Um, just a recap of what we learned today, we started off by learning our new words of the day, which were beguile and obeisance, um, which showed up in our poem, in our text of the day. Um, and then we went through figurative language, so metaphor, simile, irony, imagery, onomatopoeia, all of that was under our figur figurative language, uh, which is a subsection of literary devices. And then we talked about poetry structure, um, about different structures of poetry, free verse, blank verse, um, rhyming poetry, villanelles, sonnets, limericks, um, all of those things were under our um, poetry structure segment of the day. And then we talked about Edgar Allan Poe, his really weird life and his weird death, and his poem, The Raven, which um, is an example of rhyming scheme and um, different kinds of syllable patterns in poetry. Um, it also had metaphor, um, extended metaphor, onomatopoeia. Um, there, there was a lot in that poem and it kind of brought everything together uh, for the day and um, really made today a cohesive episode. So I hope you enjoyed and yeah, go read more from Edgar Allan Poe. Some of my other favorite of his short stories are the Telltale, Telltale Heart, um, the Black Cat and the Cask of Amontillado. They're all kind of dark, kind of um, mysterious, but they're really fun to read. And um, if you're, in, uh, they're they're also probably things you do for required reading in English, but they're fun to read and fun to analyze. Um, and if you can do that recreationally, then you'll have even more fun doing it in English class. So I hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>